You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 26th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippip, coming up on today's programme. Peru's president asks for a national truce as protests intensify. We'll have the latest on the ongoing unrest. Then we turn to Sweden as the country's defence minister pays a visit to the NATO HQ in Brussels. We'll also get the latest business news with Bloomberg. And as it's Thursday, Fernando Augusto Pacheco will join me in the studio to look at the charts once again. Where are we heading to this time, Fernando? Hello, Marcus. Today we're heading to a very exciting music market. We're heading to India. More from Fernando a bit later. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. We start today in Peru, where President Dina Boluarte has called for a national truce following the protests that have rocked the country since her predecessor was ousted on the 7th of December. Following her speech, thousands of people marched in the capital, Lima, demanding her resignation. More than 50 people have died since Boluarte took power. Let's get the latest on this with Nasalia Sobravia Perea, Professor of Latin American History at the University of Kent. Welcome to the program, Natalia. These protests in Peru, they continue. Could you try to explain what these protesters want besides the president's resignation? Some of them want the return of Pedro Castillo, which is impossible because of his illegal coup where he attempted to take power. Some of them want a constituent assembly, but mainly they want to be represented and heard. And what have we, we been hearing from the president so far? Yes, the president has more people dead than days in office and the protests have no, they don't seem to be abating. On the contrary, her actions have done nothing but exacerbate an already explosive situation. Congress is not really wanting to bring the election forward as has been the main demand. So that is one of the reasons why people continue to call for Boluarte's resignation because that would accelerate the call for elections. Boluarte has been calling for a national truce. What would that even mean in practice? It is impossible to say because on one hand she calls for truce, but she hasn't really managed to bring any type of peace to the process, any type of dialogue that is meaningful. She has not really opened up to any uh, demands or the desire for finding a peaceful solution. So, Natalie, obviously we have seen this unrest in the previous weeks, but can you tell us what exactly has led to it? Obviously, we're talking about bigger issues. What are the root causes for this political crisis? Well, these are very long-standing root causes. There is the feeling that people are not being represented by the system, especially in the south of the country, when the election of Pedro Castillo happened in 2021. Um, many in the right did not accept his election and called into question and did not allow for him to really govern. So the people in the South would have to consider that their votes are not being respected. But the longest cause has come from 
the post-pandemic situation, but also the entrenched political instability from 2016, where this uh, possibility of ousting presidents and taking it down Congress became so explosive that the country has been in and out of presidential terms ever since. These people, these protests are saying that their voices have not been heard and and what you were explaining was quite a long list of different reasons for frustration. Do you think these protests are always justified? Well, I don't think that taking the lives of policemen is ever justified, but it's also, I think, very difficult to sustain the fact that the government has attacked the protesters with live ammunition, killing people, shooting directly to their bodies. Now, are the protests um, a way for people to show their discontent, their feeling of not being represented? I think that they do have some space, the protest, but there's also many free riders, many people that are jumping onto the protest to Uh, cause further chaos. We also have to consider there's a lot of illegal economies that profit from uh, the situation currently. So there are many things that are kind of within these protests. But Nina Morote has lost her legitimacy to govern because of the excessive use of force that she's applied. Just finally, can you see any possible solutions to this crisis in Peru? Well, we have to hope that the solution will come soon, rather, sooner rather than later. We have to hope that her call for a truce is heard and that there is a, an opening for meaningful conversations that will find a way back into the democratic system that does not include killing people. What would that kind of a solution mean in practice? What would need to happen? Well, we certainly have to find an, a new electoral process, and the sooner that it happens, the better. I think that it's very difficult to consider that she can stay in power all the way until 2024, like the members of Congress are wanting the election to be pushed back. I think that there will need to be an electoral process in 2023. Are you optimistic at all? You have to remain optimistic, even in the worst situations, but it is hard to be that today. Thank you very much for your insights, Natalia. That was Natalia Sobrevia Perea, professor of Latin American history at the University of Kent. And now here is Monaco's Carota Rebello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. France is to withdraw all its troops from Burkina Faso following a request by the country's military leaders. There are currently 400 French special forces in Burkina Faso who will have one month to leave. The nation says it wants to defend itself against jihadists in the region. Nine Palestinians have been killed in an Israeli military raid in the occupied West Bank. The Palestinian health minister warned that the situation was critical in Jenin, with many other people injured and ambulances unable to reach them. Israeli media reports the military had acted to foil a major attack by militants. And the International Olympic Committee has said that Russian and Belarusian athletes could be free to compete as neutrals at the 2024 Olympics. The move has been criticized in a joint statement from Athletes for Ukraine. The IOC had asked federations to exclude these athletes following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Marcus.
Thank you very much, Carlotta. Sweden and Finland's accession to NATO was meant to be straightforward. That is, until Turkey's president Recep Tayyip Erdogan decided to use the process for his own benefit. It's now been over seven months since the Nordic nation submitted their applications to join the military alliance. And protests in Sweden have created controversy that makes it seem unlikely that Ankara would approve Stockholm's membership anytime soon. For more, I'm joined in the studio by Elizabeth Braw, who's a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome to the programme and good afternoon. Good afternoon, Marcus. First of all, Elizabeth, Swedish Defence Minister Paul Jonsson was meant to fly to Ankara tomorrow to catch up with his counterparts over there, but Turkey cancelled that meeting. How bad is the situation between Turkey and Sweden at the moment? It's terrible. I mean, there, <laughs> there isn't, there is no diplomatic way of, of more, more diplomatic way of, of, of putting it than that. It's really an extraordinary situation. If we think back to, to June, uh, when Sweden, Finland, and Turkey signed this memorandum of understanding, where Sweden and Finland committed to various things, uh, including <clears throat> working with Turkey on the Kurdish activists living mostly in Sweden that that uh, Turkey considers terrorists. Uh, they, they, Sweden and Finland promised to to look into those cases, whereas uh, Turkey then said they had promised to extradite them. Uh, and since then, things have just gone from bad to worse. And what triggered this latest? Uh, absolutely terrible turn of events is uh, that there have been a couple of protests in Sweden by, by small groups of, of individuals uh, with completely different motivations uh, that but both protests have aimed to insult Turkey and President Erdogan in particular and those protests have been successful. Exactly, we've seen uh, the Koran being burnt over there in Sweden we've also seen the hanging of an effigy of Erdogan by the feet, obviously not going down in, in Turkey or that who are those individuals? It's uh, groups uh, representing very few people. So the the, the group that that burnt uh, that that uh, hanged the effigy of Erdogan is is a tiny tiny group that uh, most people had never heard of before. Um, a a pro Kurdish group um, of, of of less than a hundred members apparently. Uh, they uh, staged that protest, and a few days later, a notorious Danish provocateur turned uh, who who specialises in burning the Quran turned up and and again burned the. Quran, but this time as an offence to to Turkey, and and Turkey uh, did take offence, and others take, took offence as well. But this time it was uh, it, it, as a direct provocation to Turkey. On this occasion, a small group of far right activists. So so you have the, the pro Kurdish activists on one hand, far right activists on the other hand, and and they created this potent mix of of insult that uh, has caused uh, Turkey to react. Exactly. Is the purpose now to try to make it impossible for Sweden to join NATO? Are they basically trying to achieve that Sweden would not become a member of that alliance? That seems to be the case. And we should remember that even though the, the public opinion in, in Sweden has shifted recently, not as much as, as in your home country, Marcus, where it shifted so significantly that Finland decided to apply for membership, which is why Sweden then decided to also apply. But um, uh, there, there, it has shifted in favour of applying. But there are people who feel very strongly uh, that Sweden should not become a member of NATO. There are also people who feel very strongly that Sweden should not be selling out 
out to Turkey. So these are two, as they say, uh, they describe it as selling out to Turkey. So there are two different motivations, one having to do with NATO, one mm-hmm. having to do with, uh, as they see it, catering to to a sort of an Islamist leader. And those two things are coming together. Small groups, but they both want to to thwart this, this NATO accession for how, that reason. How good of a picture do we have what's happening in the background? Obviously, we're talking about different countries even may have various interests. Is there a chance that maybe these protesters have something to do with, say, Russia? That is the question everybody's asking. So did these groups just appear out of nowhere? There's this uh, pro-Kurdish group that, that just turned up and, and, and uh, hanged the effigy. Then the, the far-right activists, uh, the far-right activists, uh, the, 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 the Danish uh, provocateur, he has been around for a long time. He's well known. And you can never, uh, re- hasn't really been established on whose behalf he operates, whether he's just uh, a, a provocateur in his own right or whether he has uh, additional connections. But I think one can certainly um, uh, see the potential for Russia to be part of this, whether or not they thought it up, I think, is, is another question. But uh, it's certainly in Russia's interest to to fuel the, these uh, or to give further exposure to, to these protests. And we should remember that it's very much in, in Russia's interest for, for Sweden and Finland not to join NATO. So it's the jury's out on whether Russia mm-hmm. was involved. But I think there is a lesson to be learned here for other countries. They should pay attention to such issues because if If Russia wasn't involved this time, you, we can certainly imagine that it would get involved in a future occasion because it has, you can achieve a great deal. So if, if Sweden and Finland were submitting their applications now, what else should they take into account? What went wrong? What are those lessons we should learn from all these sad events? I think the most important lesson is that you should, in the conduct of your foreign policy, uh, over the years, over various governments, you should pay attention not to offend anybody because you may need that country. Now, Finland hasn't offended Turkey over the years, whereas Sweden has uh, clearly offended. Different governments have offended Turkey. And so Turkey had an axe to grind when Sweden applied, didn't really have an axe to grind that much with Finland. And that has really put Sweden in a difficult position. But then also, it's important, I think, that the most tacti- most important tactical reason, tactical lesson to learn is that you should not apply for NATO membership when a NATO member state that is not a sort of a fully, uh, uh, full-fledged liberal democracy, when it has uh, uh, elections coming up, because you will be caught in the election campaign. So, your defense minister, the Swedish defense minister, Minister Paul Jonsson, was meant to go to Turkey tomorrow. That's not happening. But he He did manage to go to visit the NATO HQ in Brussels yesterday. Do we know anything about what was discussed there? Well, so the effort now underway is for NATO, NATO HQ and also NATO member states, uh, especially the US, to put more pressure on Turkey. That that is uh, the strategy that's, that has been uh, developing and and. Uh, and uh, evolving over these past few months. And the US in particular is obviously the, the key component in all of this. But we should remember that that uh, Secretary General Stoltenberg has also been very forceful in saying that now it, it really is time to, to ratify Sweden and Finland's accession. And with the US, the US does have uh, various carrots uh, to, to offer, including a new F-16s, which is what Turkey needs. But it's uh, that's not just up to the White House or the Biden administration. It's actually something that, that the Senate has to approve and and Senator uh, Menendez who is in uh, the, the chairman of of the that Senate committee has said that he will not approve it because he doesn't approve of Turkey's human rights record so um, Sweden's NATO application is a little bit uh, <clears throat> up in the air at the moment 
What does all this mean for Finland? Does Turkey view Sweden and Finland as one, or do you think there might be an actual chance that Finland would join the NATO, would join NATO first? Well, Turkey has said all along that its beef is not primarily with Finland; it's primarily with Sweden, and that Finland is is. Is, is not really a problem. And Finland has said all along, and Sweden has said all along that, uh, including uh, for decades, these two countries have said all along that if we join, uh, we will join together. And Finland has been saying that until as recently as a few days ago, even though it looked like Turkey would approve, would ratify Finland, but not Sweden. But Finland kindly said, well, we are not joining without Sweden. But what has changed in the past few days is that uh, the Finnish government has started floating the idea that we might mm. actually join uh, without Sweden. Just finally, if I ask you to look into your crystal ball, what do you expect from the future? I think we will see some sort of development after the, the presidential elections in Turkey. Of course, Erdogan might win and <laughs> he might still have uh, an axe to grind with Sweden even after winning and it's likely that he wins. But the other issue then is will support for the NATO application in Sweden itself, will it have dissipated by then? Will Sweden say, well, this is not what we signed up to. We don't want to join this alliance anymore. And in the meantime, Sweden is in a very, and Finland too, uh, they are in a very exposed position because they've given up their their um, uh, their uh, alliance uh, their their, uh, their I don't want to say neutrality because it's it's not neutrality but they have uh, given up their their position of remaining outside military alliances in favor of joining NATO but they are not in NATO yet so they are very exposed and they will be exposed at least until May and Sweden possibly longer. Elizabeth Bro, thank you very much for joining us today. It's twelve seventeen here in London. You are with the briefing. It's now time to round up the day's main business news with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Welcome to the programme, Ewan. Sales are higher, but shares are down. What's going on at the world's biggest drinks maker? Marcus, yeah, it's the company behind Guinness, Manoff Vodka, Johnny Walker, uh, Whiskey and loads of other big brands. London-based Diageo has reported first half numbers today. Uh, sales grew 9.4% on an organic basis. That was better than forecast. A pretty decent number, you might think, but shares currently down almost 7%. Now, the story here is uh, weakening growth in North America. Now, the region is the source of about half of Diageo's uh, earnings last year. Sales gained just 3% uh, over the course of the six months. Volumes actually fell by 4%. The gap is because Diageo has been raising prices. Now, the drop in consumption in North America, really a challenge to the narrative which the company uh, has been trying to set out, which is that spirits are an affordable luxury and will remain resilient despite the rising cost of living. Uh, uh, Chief Executive Ivan Menezes, who's been speaking to Bloomberg this morning, said that US households have room in their budgets for the occasional bottle of spirits as the average household spends just about a dollar a day on such products. However, these declining volumes do start to challenge that narrative. Uh, and we do- did see a drop off in sales led by vodka, Canadian whiskey 
uh, and scotch. So perhaps uh, a bit of a sign that uh, Diageo's pricing power, which we believe is pretty strong, its ability to raise prices despite tough times, perhaps uh, may have its limits. We're also getting news of yet another tech company cutting jobs. Tell us more about that. Yeah, another day, another company cutting jobs in the tech sector. It's Europe's biggest software company. SAP says it's going to cut 3,000 jobs this year. It is another in a long list of uh, tech sector job uh, job cuts. Uh, IBM yesterday saying it's going to cut almost 4,000 jobs. We've also heard similar cuts, many of them bigger, from Alphabet, uh, the parent company of Google, Microsoft and Amazon, uh, to name just a few. Uh, SAP, uh, the German company, says that the purpose of its reorganization is to refocus on its largest business, uh, which is cloud services. The cloud business uh, became SAP's biggest uh, revenue stream last year. But whatever the reason, it is just another tech company cutting jobs. Uh, One bit of analysis uh, which caught my eye this morning, uh, the tech sector, according to one bit of research cut 97,000 jobs over the course of uh, last year. But just uh, to put it in a bit of context and uh, just uh, to make clear that this picture isn't entirely gloomy, the overall labour markets on both sides of the Atlantic are pretty healthy. We're not seeing mass layoffs uh, across the broader economy. And it should also be said that the tech sector created huge numbers of jobs uh, over the pandemic. So this is just some of those jobs uh, being kind of dialed back. Ewan Potts from Bloomberg, thank you very much for this business update. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. And last today, it's that time of the week again for Monaco's Fernando Augusto Pacheco to join us in the studio for this week's edition of The Global Countdown. How are you doing today? Very good, Marcus, especially because of the country I chose today, because because after watching an excellent film called RRR, an Indian film, I was in love and I said, you know what, I should explore more uh, the Indian film industry and music industry. Such an important market as well. Have you booked your flights already? Well, maybe I will. I know, I know you like India as well, Marcus, so you might enjoy actually this top five. Quite unusual at times, actually. Uh, our number what do you f- mean by unusual? Well, I don't think we ever had some sort of uh, almost a religious and devotional track uh, here on the Global countdown but that's what happens at number five we'll hear a clip and then i'll explain why it's so spiritual this is gushan kumar with shri hanuman chalisa First of all, can you remind us of the name of this song again, please? Yes, so it's Shri Hanuman Chalisa. And I have to explain to our listeners that Hanuman is a Hindu god. I mean, I, I, I even have to say sorry for, you know, for all the ones, for the believers, because it, 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 there was a long story, actually, about uh, the god. Next time I'll do a better research for you, Marcus. But I also found out that this song in particular, there's, been, there's many versions of this track, but this one have more than two 
billion views on YouTube. That's impressive. I think it's the most watched uh, Indian uh, video on YouTube ever. Uh, and, and probably is a song that people keep coming back to. That's why it's a number five as well. It's it's kind of a nice, gentle start. Are we getting any Benjamin Incross uh, remixes anytime soon? Fernando? Well, I have a feeling that probably there are already a few remixes of that. Uh, but, you know, beautiful, beautiful track there. And number five. You said it was spiritual, by the way. Can you tell us more about that, that aspect? Well, what, what are the lyrics saying? It is a bit, you know, chanting to the to the Hanuman, the, this Hindu god. Uh, so, you know, it's it's about love, it's about family. It's it's just mm. the beautiful feelings of life. I've got a feeling number four is going to be different. It is different. And, you know, we're looking at India, Marcus, and the music industry and the film industry in India, they are very much intertwined. The majority of tracks, they're usually part of a soundtrack of a film. And I think that's brilliant. So there's a new film coming out called Patan. I think it's out uh, this weekend uh, in India and, and internationally as well. It's about an ex-army man turned undercover agent, big budget. And when, it, when I talk about big budget, you can see that in the soundtrack as well. And, you know, Indian films are like that, you know, even even if it's a serious action film, there will be kind of a dance scene, there will be, you know, I think music is much more present. You wouldn't see that in a Christopher Nolan film, which I find that actually quite boring, the Christopher Nolan films. But um, shall we have a listen? This is a part of the soundtrack of this film. Uh, it's a great pop song. It's by Vishal and Shaikar, performed by Arijit Singh and Sukriti Kakar with uh, Jum Jo Patan. <laughs> Wow. You know what, India India is going to be the biggest country in terms of population quite soon. Do you think they're going to have more influence over the music we listen to in the future? Is this something that is to come? Absolutely. We are seeing this already with films. Even here in London, where we live, Marcus, there are quite a few cinemas dedicated uh, to show films like this. So I have even this film, Patan, I'm sure it will do well at the box office this weekend uh, here in the UK. I'm dying to see it because what I like it. The the films, they don't take themselves so seriously, you know. Yes, there are explosions, there's helicopter rides, but there's people dancing by the pool with sexy bikinis as well. It's a mixture of that. And I mentioned... I don't think the nudity is that big a thing in Indian film industry. Well, well, well. You're kind of right, but I think things are changing. And a number three is a great example of that. It's still part of the soundtrack of Patan. And I have to say, it is... It is set in a pool party in a beautiful location. I couldn't really identify. It is a bit sexy, Marcus, actually. So I think they are pushing the barriers. I'm sure. What is your definition of a bit sexy? Well, bikinis, you know, even the beginning of this song, it's in Spanish. It's like, come to la fiesta, you know. So there is this kind of vavavum vibes, if I may say. But uh, now I understand what you're talking about. Of course, it's not something that you would see, you know, in Brazil. It's still slow steps but it is sexy let's have a listen it's also Vishal and Shikar and the song is called Besharan Rang which means shameless color (laughs) 
And I will just read one of the lyrics, Marcus. The moment I feel a wave of modesty, I throw it to the wind. I mean, it's sexy. That's deep. Yes. <laughs> but Shall I we continue with what's number two? Number two, yeah. That's, uh, I believe, is not a soundtrack of a film. Uh, but it's a song by Sandeep uh, Surila and Kamal Shaudai. It's called Kaliya Murad. It's, it, it's a different kind of genre of music in India. It's, it's, it's Haryanvi. So it's quite energetic. Lots of vocoder in there. Shall we have a listen? <laughs> I'm into it, Marcus. I'm very much into it. I definitely will explore more music, the, the music industry. I also in like India. the creative use of auto tune in that. Oh track. yes, I mean it's very uh, creative, and the video is kind of funny as well. It's about husband and wife. I think they're fighting, but it's all kind of humorous uh, in a way. So it, it, it's nice. Do you think number one? The song in India has deserved its place. It it does deserve, and for me, it's more of a conventional track as well. And 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 he's a singer. His name is King. Uh, he's actually coming to the UK to play at the Wireless Festival. So he's a rapper as well. That's something quite current. He's quite uh, well known among among young people in India as well. I think that this track is something that could definitely work uh, outside India as well. It's a very nice track by King. It's called Man and Mary John, which means Believe Me, Sweetheart. Let's have a listen. was a pleasant song. A very pleasant song. And, you know, as our producer Carlotta actually mentioned to us, it does sound a little bit like mm-hmm. reggaeton. So maybe it's interesting because he does use elements of Indian traditional music, but a little bit of hip hop, a little bit of reggaeton perhaps as well. And there's even an English version of this track, not performed by King, but uh, by another singer, which is also doing very well. So, yes, you're right, Marcus. Perhaps some of the music are going to be in other countries more and more. I now understand your fascination with Indian music scene. I have to say that this was a particularly interesting top five. Just one final question relating to a song we discussed earlier. Do you ever have this moment when you feel a wave of modesty approaching? And if so, what is your way of tackling that? <laughs> you know what? how I tackled? I throw it to the wind. Monaco's Fernando Augusto there. Thank you very much. And that's all for today's edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Carla Rebello. Our researcher was Andre Nicol. And our studio manager was Steph Chungo. The briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. That is at 2100 in Tokyo. Midday here in London, 7am in Toronto. I am Marcus Hippi. Goodbye and thanks for listening.